Hey guys, we have a new giveaway this week. Thanks to our partner, Beta, we will be giving away the Luxum Weighted Blanket. Did you know that it's scientifically proven that weighted blankets can cause chemical changes in your body to help you relax and sleep better? By increasing serotonin and melatonin, the Luxum Weighted Blanket helps you sleep better and gives you enhanced mood. It also decreases cortisol levels, which helps to reduce stress and anxiety. We're giving away five of these weighted blankets this week to our listeners. All you have to do is enter the giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway, and we will be giving away five of these to our lucky listeners. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Arjun Aurora and John Lowe. Arjun is founder and advisor at Valence Advisory, where he advises funds, startups, and Fortune 100 companies, including Nike, Expa, the Omidyar Network, and more. Previously, he has served as partner at 500 Startups and started and sold his first company, Retargeter, which he bootstrapped and grew to the top 100 companies on Inc.'s fastest growing companies list in 2013. John Lowe is a leadership coach to founders as an advisor at Valence Advisory. He's also an author and speaker who has ghostwritten numerous books, including a New York Times bestseller. On this episode, Chad sits down with Arjun and John to discuss their entrepreneurial journey, the culture of Silicon Valley and how it's changing faster than ever, and the ways in which Arjun and John are advising founders and changing lives. Arjun, John, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having so us. Yeah. I would love to take just a, a brief moment uh, where both of you could introduce yourselves and mm-hmm. give us the uh, maybe condensed version of uh, your bios. Yeah, go ahead and get started. So Arjun and uh, Dave Aurora have been uh, around the Silicon Valley ecosystem for many years, but I grew up down in Southern California. I went to school at UC Berkeley, studied electrical engineering and computer science, so technical background. Uh, then went into investment banking for a few years, um, again, in technology, so kind of keeping that thread going. Um, eventually made my way to Yahoo where I ended up running business development for Yahoo real estate. So early days of, you know, the online kind of real estate world, Zillow and Trulia were just getting started. Uh, from there started my first company called retargeter in the online advertising space. And that, you know, grew to some meaningful size, tens of millions in revenue. We had just under 50 people in San Francisco, customers and clients all over the world, and was a tremendous and awesome experience and learned so much. (laughs) Uh, We sold that company in 2015 and then kind of meandered and made my way to the venture side. Uh, Eventually became a partner at 500 startups where I was for a few years, actively investing in early stage startups across the globe. Um, and transitioned from there at the beginning of 2018. I've since been in residence uh, at Expa and supporting a handful of other funds. Um, and more recently, John and I have partnered to uh, create uh, Valence Advisory, which is an entity that supports emerging managers, founders, uh, family offices, sovereign funds, and, and a whole bunch of uh, different you know types of folks that are engaged in the startup ecosystem. Very cool. And uh, John, we were talking a little bit earlier, but would love for you to share your background. I think some of your interests about communication uh, psychology. Let's try to dive into all that. Okay, it sounds great, fascinating. Great. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. So, uh, John Lowe here. Uh, so I came from a technical background too. I did a degree in the commerce and engineering and, uh, uh, worked in multiple industries, consulting, management, consulting, and design, just trying to really figure out, uh, you know, figure out my life. <laughs> and, um, but one thing, one thread that kind of binded my life was I, I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo and the lineage or the school that I came from was strongly focused on, uh, developing character and personal growth, uh, not so much stressing just the fanciness of, you know, being able to kick someone in the head. So uh, 
I've always valued um, human potential, and I've always asked myself the question: you know, what what helps someone really express that more fully, and why is it for others who clearly don't wake up in the morning with the intention to suck at anything, right? Right. Why do they? Why do others sometimes struggle to achieve the same? And what I realized is over time, I uh, got in, you know, did a deep dive into how powerful communication is as a tool to change the way we behave and also affect change and influence uh, change in other people's behaviors. And really, uh, in the last decade, I've managed to really codify that. And I, um, and I think I mentioned this to you uh, earlier, Chad, that uh, I realized that, um, you know, the the process we use to describe our experience is actually the exact same process we use to create or recreate our experience. And so today, uh, I'm very much focused on leadership coaching. I see myself more as a communications nerd, but not really in your classical sense, where you know doing sure. internal comms or uh, writing copy. Although I can do that, but what I really uh, am passionate about working uh, in is um, helping founders or emerging fund managers, general partners, people who really value personal growth and leadership, and see how that has a direct impact on their performance every day. Is to really help them learn uh, about themselves mm. to a deeper degree to develop that self-awareness, but also teach them like communication techniques, various verbal or nonverbal to more effectively communicate their positive intentions for others and really align people behind a vision and really build trust and safety in an environment that so that, you know, people when people aren't worried about safety, when safety is taken care of, they can actually uh, access their intelligence center in their mind. Sure. And so they always perform better, you know. Um, and so that's where I, I come from. And uh, to Arjun's point, we've managed to codify this together in a collaboration uh, called Valence Advisory. And really our mission is while we're working with emerging funds and working with family offices and founders, uh, the, the meta vision of this is, you know, the, the, the good outcome we want is really to strengthen and reinforce trust in the ecosystem between stewards of capital and founder potential. Because I think if you get the capital right, you get the strategy right, you you find the right founders, you can create some amazing things. But you know, when you don't have the Trinity working, like mm. you only need it's a single point of failure, basically. Yeah. And without good communication or evolving communication for all parties, it's I mean, we get substandard results, right? There's never never gonna be a great outcome unless we get communication right. Um, and it's an exciting time to be talking about communication and all these topics because you know, whether you glance at the news or whether you're a student of history. It's uh, clear that humans don't know how to communicate that that well. Like we're still, <laughs> we're learning. very much a work in progress, <laughs> yeah. and um, we kind of right. need to speed this up if we're going to do anything really cool or ambitious in the future. Um, I love that. So, really well said. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. you. So you two are both based in San Francisco. I'm sure you're traveling mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, how do you get out to the Bay Area in the first place? Everyone has a unique story of kind of like sure. how they got started here. So I would love to hear yeah. uh, about how you first came to the Bay. So I, uh, yeah, I grew up in Southern California and, uh, one of my dad's uncles was here kind of in the early days of kind of what we would now call, you know, the Silicon Valley revolution. And so always had that kind of in the back of my head, um, but ended up going to school at UC Berkeley and was very fortunate to be there where got a strong kind of technical, you know, background. And then having just seen early indications, there was a program called the center for entrepreneurship and technology at Cal, which was just kind of, you know, introducing students to what was going on in the entrepreneurial ecosystem very, very early. I remember Peter Thiel came and spoke and the CEO of Flextronics and a few other folks. And, you know, after graduating from Cal, there was a choice, you know, do I stay here or do I go? And I think by that point in time, it was very clear that there was something very magical and special about this place and that I was definitely going to stay. Sure. Um, and then, you know, moved into San Francisco, started working, you know, up and down the peninsula, but never left the city. And then when I started my first company, it was in San Francisco itself. So, um, 
there's something for me personally that's just so deeply tied to the energy and magic of this place that you know I can't can't see myself going anywhere else. So definitely, uh, that's how I got here. And I, I love that you use the phrase magic because that would that would sum up you know a lot of my experiences here, and especially yeah. if you compare them from. Uh, you know, operating in any other entrepreneurial hub or any other mm-hmm. major metro center, if you compare and contrast that experience to the experience here, it's uh, it can yeah. be magical, right? It's not totally. guaranteed to be magical, yeah. but <laughs> that's uh, part of the things that comes with magic, like right. no guarantees. Um, John, how'd you come out here? Yeah, so I mean, uh, short story, um, I never really uh, grew up feeling like I quite fit in with the mainstream, not sure. by choice to be a rebel or to be special. I just like didn't quite connect. Right. And it was quite serendipitous how I found myself in San Francisco because, like, the first time I came here, because I, I was born in Malaysia and I uh, grew up in Australia. and But in 2009, I actually just came for a couple nights just to visit San Francisco City. And I, I walked around the city and had a visceral experience that I literally have lived a life here before. Hmm. And uh, that was 2009. And since then, I kind of followed my intuition and thread uh, doing a lot of business uh, flying here and internationally. And... Um, eventually uh, met someone who is now my girlfriend <laughs> and kind of followed my heart on that um, in the recent uh, uh, five or six years and um, really decided that this was really the place for me. Yeah, I definitely have some uh, similar experiences there. And I think that's uh, an interesting segue to start talking about, you know, maybe the uh, the moment or moments where you two noticed that uh, culture might not necessarily be your friend or might not support, you know, your overall ambitions or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, culture is something that's very tricky. And, you know, I instantly connected with you over some experiences early on in elementary school and things like that, where you just become aware of how different your worldview and your ideas might be from other folks. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily a bad thing, but it can feel stifling at times. And uh, I would love to hear about, you know, how did you um, both kind of find your path in entrepreneurship, which is really mm-hmm. just a rejection of traditional culture in some ways, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, yeah, for me, it's been an interesting story. Having grown up as, you know, first generation uh, immigrant. So my parents moved here from uh, India through uh, Germany and then Minnesota and then into California. Um, you know, it always had this interesting dichotomy between two different cultures. And so that was, that brought a lot of awareness. And then growing up in uh, down in Southern California has its own unique culture. And so, um, for me, I was fortunate in early age to have an understanding that culture is not, there's you know, monoculture isn't necessarily a thing. I just grew up knowing sure. that there are multiple cultures and you can also have a choice around which culture you choose to adopt more or less of. Um, so that awareness for me was a very powerful thing, uh, you know, as, uh, as a young kid and, and then, you know, got into the study of, of how to, surprisingly now thinking back at it at quite a young age for whatever reason, uh, pulled into like how, you know, how does culture work? How does leadership work? How do you define a culture? How, what are things that you can do to either create super positive cultures or what are the extremes of that look like, which maybe aren't so positive. So that became a a study, uh, or an area of interest and in, in a typical kind of highly curious kid, voracious way, just read everything I could find uh, on that. And like, let's call it my mid to late teens. So that began or kicked off a process of, you're trying to understand some of these things that you were you were just chatting about. Very cool. Yeah. And um, what's your kind of read on where, where the Bay Area is at right now in terms of uh, innovation? Are we uh, mm. stagnating? Are things moving uh, more slowly or are things accelerating? And yeah. Yeah, what's your, your read on that? I would certainly say it's accelerating. I think there's a ton of, uh, you know, just volume of activity happening and right. people are getting more and more refined in their ability to create, um, you know, more quickly. So I think we're moving from having a thought 
and making that into something that is tangible and that is compressing, um, you know, more and more uh, over time. And so in the past, you know, people say, oh, it would take $5 million to go buy servers to, you know, install and then you can start running, you know, basic hello world. Today, you can be up and running for, you know, 50 bucks or whatever sure. and get something, you know, up and running on Squarespace or something like that. So the world is certainly accelerating and this being the epicenter of that is is amazing. I, I'm, you know, fortunate through my time at 500 to go visit a lot of the other innovation uh, hubs across the world, whether it be, um, you know, everything from Singapore, Dubai, Paris, uh, Tokyo. So there's a lot of different places where this innovation is you know, starting to happen. Mexico City is another great place. But there is still something special about the Bay Area in its ability to move quickly and its ability to both have all of that expertise that exists here, that multiple generations of hyper growth and hyperscale, you know, coupled with the pay it forward culture of like, let's just be helpful. Let's help create together, right. um, which is really at the essence of, you know, what, what attracts me so much to this place. So I think those, those two things for now are keeping the Bay area, in my opinion, the the strongest place for, for this. And, and that is accelerating. So, sure. you know, it's here and it's happening faster, which is, which is great. Yeah, I think the network effects of the Bay Area are just really hard to argue with. Their mm -hmm. concentration of people and even folks who don't live here full time, there are a yeah. number of folks who just come here so often that it's uh, pretty hard to beat. The uh, cost of living, obviously, yeah. is at the forefront of folks' mind. But um, if you try to you know, figure out how to buy that same network that you might get outside the Valley anywhere else, I don't yeah. see how you do it. No. So. It's, yeah, it's uh, very, very, very expensive. And the other challenge is that people won't even open it up. Unless you're in the ecosystem, they're not going to engage with you. Because yeah, if you're not values aligned, you know, there's no point. It's no amount of money for, you know, will we'll change that for certain people. And yeah. I think that's important. But, and, and that brings yeah. up an interesting point, too, because I think in, in many other locations, you'll run into this uh, phenomena where people are just very, very guarded about um, opportunities. There's definitely a mindset of scarcity where... Uh, I might know someone who I think you should talk to, but I'm going to hold back that intro and just be weird about it until, <laughs> yeah. you know, you right. introduce me or make a, like a sale or something like that. Sure. And um, that type of uh, barrier to entry is uh, it's palpable in other mm -hmm. markets. And mm -hmm. I, I come from D.C. and oh, yeah. uh, a lot of folks definition of entrepreneurship there is government contracts, more government contracts, but we'll call wow. it wow. we'll call it innovation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's <laughs> that's fine. But it's like you're a great contractor. You're not necessarily building anything new, which is fine. Um, and we need different markets like that doing different things. But what's going on out here is just is very, very different. So I was hoping to um, maybe share some uh, stories about, you know, your early days, early companies, mm -hmm. uh, maybe big breaks that either yeah. of you caught, um, especially the breaks that you might not have necessarily been ready for. Those are always <laughs> the, the best stories. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we'd love to take it back to maybe your first company sure. or a first investment that really took off. Yeah. Um, feel free to. Yeah, take it away. Great. So yeah, uh, maybe I'll yeah I'll chat through company and then kind of my my space and venture um, and kind of share those two stories and then sure. you know, hear from John. We'll that go back and forth. I'm sure we'll have lot lots and lots of stories. <laughs> Let's so, do it. Um, you know, with Retargeter in the early days, you know, we bootstrapped the company and and the company was focused on providing you know display retargeting um, to initially small to medium sized businesses, and that's kind of how we got our start and focused on that particular segment. But I think what happened over time, which was really interesting, is that we started to look at the market and say, well, we we started by focusing on this wedge, which is just retargeting for SMBs, and it was $500 a month, and it was relatively simple. But over time, kind of you know, listening to the market and having some amazing uh, folks on the team that were doing that in a very savvy way, started to recognize, hey, there's more opportunity here. Let's get people to think differently about you know our advertising marketing as a whole. Let's kind of think about this mid-funnel as a is a whole new place to play. 
Um, and that started to then, you know, lead to a lot of rapid innovation. So we started with something that was getting a lot of traction, but then decided let's keep taking that and let's build on that and create, you know, little kind of micro products or in some case macro products that built off the foundation of that. And that ultimately led to the interest of the advertising agency world. And that's where we got a lot of our big breaks. And I think what we focused on was educating the market and showing them kind of what was possible with this new technology. Right. And that led to some really kind of unique uh, situations where we started working with very large advertising agencies and and being able to, uh, you know, have you know, seven-figure, six-figure contracts um, with these agencies, not only to kind of do the core retargeting stuff, but also to kind of be their eyes and ears on innovation and in some cases just create stuff, um, you know, in some ways with them. Right. Um, and so I think the, the break there was this understanding that it is incredibly important to be narrowly focused and be absolutely operationally efficient and execute hard, but not to necessarily lose the, uh, the, the uh, general awareness in the ecosystem. And that is, I think, and that created opportunities right. um, by having that awareness. And so there were people on the team and, and myself and others running around that allowed that to happen. So that was a that was just a cool, you know, experience <laughs> yeah. to see that play out and and see that kind of hyper growth curve hit. The other thing that was an interesting thing that I yeah, I wouldn't say I fell into per se, but it just kind of was a unique series of events. So I'd become an LP in fund one of 500 startups and was not really actively investing and but just, you know, saw what I thought was something early around seed funds and this idea of investing early and engaging in this universe of uh, startups that were being created back in kind of 2009, 2010. So became an LP, got involved with 500. Then as I was operating my company, you know, started to advise and mentor and, and try and share my knowledge and, and things that I had learned um, and started doing that with 500 companies because I had kind of an affiliation there. And that, that LP check was very random. <laughs> you know, it was not something that was on my map at all ended up talking to somebody. He's like, Hey, we're starting a fund. I was like, what's a fund? Yeah. How does one become a part of this? What are you looking for? Sure. Oh, you're taking small checks. Okay. I can do that. Um, and that all kind of worked out. And so that story began in 2009 and eventually, you know, ended up becoming a partner at 500 startups because I had built those, you know, relationships over time with the portfolio companies and with the fund and attending LP meetings. So that was, a. Uh, it was a lucky break to be able to write that check. And that ultimately led to me being a partner there and then having this incredible experience, you know, all over the world supporting the global startup innovation ecosystem. And then within the 500 story had the responsibility ultimately of raising capital for the fund, um, which again, kind of, you know, we'll spare you the internals, but kind of ended up taking on that role and, and the, you know, um, we kind of decided that, that was a good place for me to hang out. And it was, it was great. And so ended up, kind of interfacing with the LP community and the global um, pools of capital that were interested in innovation. And I would call that, you know, really interesting break that I was able to have that seat, uh, which is typically reserved for folks who have been in the ecosystem for 20, 30 years sure. um, and uh, to have, be able to interface with the LP community. So that was a phenomenal experience and, you know, got to do everything from hang out in the prime minister's office in Dubai to go to boardrooms in Tokyo and, you know, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Paris and and really understand things at a more macro level in terms of how capital gets funneled into funds and then how that ultimately makes its way down to startups and and understanding the, uh, you know, the history of that capital and, and how it flows. So that was, uh, you know, a fascinating experience. And now having taken that, we get to do all the fun stuff that John and I get to do. So uh, <laughs> and that wouldn't have happened had I not had that, Very cool. uh, had that experience. So those are a couple of stories that come to mind. And uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, talking about sovereign wealth funds and the macro environment is 
very interesting because I, I remember when I first discovered them, the uh, the Oxford Handbook is floating around somewhere mm, on the shelf nice. of uh, sovereign wealth funds. But it's almost like this whole new vista opens up about what's possible, how things get created, and it's um, in a world that's prone to conspiracy theories. It's so <laughs> fun to actually learn what's going on because yeah. you you encounter a book like the Oxford Hand, Handbook for Sovereign Wealth Funds, and you can learn about it. And it's it's uh, it's available for yeah. a low price. Nothing. Right. There really isn't too much of a barrier to entry other than like doing the work, showing up, figuring yep. it out. And uh, it's very exciting, though, when you consider how much capital right now is sitting on the sidelines or that's getting, uh, you know, substandard returns. Yeah. And yeah. Um, sovereign wealth funds typically, if I get this right, typically invest in large infrastructure projects and, you know, very large things, large funds. Where is that environment at right now? And I'd be curious to know, uh, do you see that environment um, warming up to the idea of technology investments or is it still primarily focused on infrastructure investments and things of that nature. No, it's certainly warming up. And I think that's what is incredibly exciting that sure. that uh, pool of capital is, you know, waking up, so to speak, to this opportunity. And I think that's really, really intriguing. So typically, right. yes, it has been infrastructure projects. And I think some of the other things at a macro level that are happening, you know, Japan has negative interest rates. This is happening in certain parts in Europe as well. So if your your money is sitting there, it is literally losing value over time. So you've got right. to put it to work. <laughs> um, and I think that's now... Uh, you know, kind of galvanizing folks to look outside of other traditional places to say, okay, where are we seeing return? What right. is possible? Um, and that I personally think is very exciting to help be a small part of educating, you know, those folks around, hey, how do you how do you play in this ecosystem in the right way? How do you do it in a way that you're working with the right folks, values aligned folks who who also understand how to think long term? Because right. sovereign wealth funds, by definition, are very long-term minded entities. Whereas, you know, if you look at a startup, they might be worried about making payroll next month. <laughs> right. So how do you translate between those two very different frames? Sure. Um, you know, becomes an important exercise. So as sovereign wealth funds and other large pools of capital have to figure that out, they'll need, you know, folks to help make sure that they do that the right way. But Definitely. the trend is shifting um, in this direction. And they're starting to, I've even seen not necessarily sovereign wealth funds, but other very large pools of capital look to write direct checks into companies sure. um, as well versus even writing LP checks into funds. So it's a very interesting time. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it feels, so, it feels yeah. that way. Um, definitely. So John, I'd be curious to know any uh, stories you can share from either the early days or even something, you know, recently, any, any type of uh, breakthroughs, whether they're personal or professional. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like some people have like the big breaks, you know, and they can mark it out as like huge milestones in their life. I think for me, it's just been uh, uh, one after another subtle and has been building and been generative in my life. Sure. Uh, I think that I mean, the main thing I probably want to share is that uh, probably when people ask me, you know, uh, what's, you know, what's your superhuman skill or your super talent? I think for me, and I haven't really deconstructed it. I've literally always been fortunate enough to to know who to learn from from day one, regardless of what I chose, whether it was martial arts, whether it was you know a subject matter at in college, or whether it was personal development, whether it's communication, and subsequently that's also meant that uh, they they instilled in me a lot of first principles thinking, mm -hmm. which I could uh, uh, recontextualize uh, regardless of how the times are changing, and that's one benefit. But the other benefit is that um, I haven't had to unlearn things, and. Literally, I've just trusted with mentors in my life, and I can I can name so many. My Taekwondo instructor, like, kind of teaching me to uh, that. Hey, perhaps like all the things that you aren't happy about in your life, there's one common denominator in those occurrences, and that's the presence of you. And that's empowering, freaky at the same time. Um, 
And then, you know, down the track, you know, managers at work uh, who recognize that, hey, I could do uh, good stuff Mm -hmm. if I kept going where I was in the company. But they would say, you know what, you should leave because I think your potential outlives this context. Mm -hmm. And like initially it's hard to take, but they really saw something in me. I hadn't recognized myself yet. And then, you know, other people who've like given me breaks and, you know, when I first uh, left my job and uh, started doing like kind of copywriting projects and ghostwriting projects like literally someone took a gamble with me to write their first book and did really well referred to whole networks to me and and within that they also continue to encourage me to get you know facilitation certification or they would pay for it and they'd say you you do you do this really well and so i've always had i guess like hidden like hand energetic hands pushing me and egging me on and i think that's something i'm eternally grateful for I don't know how I'd reproduce and uh, make it a product. I'm starting one person at a time. And um, I think that's, and really that's how it's led me to Arjun, really. I've never, um, I just, I, I can spot the values aligned people and I just don't question it. Yeah. Sure. And uh, one of the things you mentioned there, I think is fascinating is that mindset of uh, the mentor that I'm working with is the perfect mentor and this is the perfect time. And I can, you know, capitalize on these opportunities and that's so refreshing to hear because often people forget that uh, maybe the mentor that is right there and the opportunity that's at hand is the the best one. Mm. Like it's the only one that you have there right now. And uh, you might as well treat it that way. You might as well, you know, put your trust, put in the daily work um, because there's a lot of conversation online about like finding the mentor, but there isn't a lot about like helping your mentor or, uh, you know, any anything along those lines. So that type of mindset about, you know, being coachable and um, being open to you know, knowledge that you don't have. I do think that there's kind of like a lack of that uh, right right now where people are, they might show up, they might say that they're willing to learn, but actually putting those things in practice or, you know, taking hard advice and leaving a company, not so easy to yeah. put into practice. Right. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, recent things that you're up to. If you can share any details about, mm-hmm. you know, what your day-to-day is like or sure. which, what you're up to. Uh, I think that would be fun to kind of like go behind the scenes uh, mm-hmm. from an emerging yeah. holding company sure. fund and yeah. uh, let you take it away. Yeah, 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 great. So yeah, talk through some of the, you know, entities that we're involved with and some of the things that we're up to. So, um, you know, in residence at Expa and supporting, you know, being supportive there and supporting some of the companies that are in the studio there and burgeoning and growing. And that's a lot of fun. So, you know, get to do that with the Omidyar Network. Uh, we're coming, I'm an advisor, get to support them more on uh, particular topics, what we're calling now kind of beneficial tech and, um, you know, supporting companies that are looking at data, privacy, um, and uh, kind of user behavior online in new and innovative ways that respect the user. And I think that's another really interesting thread to get to pull and look for companies there and then continue to refine that thesis so it gets tighter and tighter. Um, with Nike, you know, fortunate to sit on the investment committee for Nike's internal innovation efforts um, called Valiant Labs and get to, you know, support them as they uh, create um, new companies inside of Nike. The House Fund, which is UC Berkeley's venture fund. So the House Fund supports founders who are coming out either, you know, student or alum of UC Berkeley and seen some tremendously uh, companies there, Superhuman, Flexport, and others that are kind of in that portfolio um, and get to be, you know, supportive of them. And, and that next generation 
companies like Parade and Hinge2 and others that are coming up, um, you know, out of the campus, which is really, really cool. And having obviously been an alum there, it's great to be able to be supportive in that way. We're also working with a handful of companies, uh, supporting them in kind of a combination of the leadership coaching and the communications and change work that John uh, has been chatting about, coupled with kind of just operational um, support and and network support. So helping people plug into various networks and then also, you know, just tactically, oh, you need to, I need to get my Salesforce set up and, uh, you know, what are the best practices for that and who should I talk to and sure. how do we make sure we're hiring the right salespeople, right? So, so being both highly tactical and tangible about how we're supporting those founders and then also focusing on those first principle kind of core belief system areas as well. So really looking for the highest leverage possible for those founders. So hopefully you spend time, you know, with us and then we can help you not only in the practical things, but also on the core things that will change ideally the direction of the company well into the future. So that, and then with the family offices and the other kind of large pools of capital for them, it's more around you know, helping them understand the ecosystem, look for opportunities, define their own thesis and their own approach. So a lot of it is, Hey, we want to play in this global innovation ecosystem, but how do we let people know how we want to play? Um, because if you don't do that, well, you don't have boundaries, you, you don't, don't have boundaries, you don't know what you're for doing. You. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I don't know. Do I send them series <laughs> F deals? Do they want to look at crypto pre-seed startups? I don't know, but like sure. helping them kind of really define that and then navigate the ecosystem after they've done that definition work. Um, and a day to day is a ton of context switching. So, you know, John and I will have a meeting with a, you know, $10 billion entity in one minute and then switch and chat, chat with a pre-seed founder about, you know, hire their first you know, uh, engineer or something like that. So it's this incredible opportunity to uh, have a lot of different contexts in any given day, which makes it a ton of fun, but also appreciate that that's not for everybody. Yeah, uh, right. It can be right. pretty intense. And acquired taste. Yeah, for, very for much sure. so. So yeah, John, what's your day to day? Like, are you still to, practicing uh, Taekwondo or? Uh, you know, yeah, uh, at the moment it's just more self-practice, but uh, what I've substituted for is compulsive, obsessive compulsive surfing at, <laughs> uh, you know, at whenever I get the chance. And uh, I think that's kind of my meditation. Uh, but um, to, to kind of piggyback off what Arjun's saying, yeah, so I join Arjun for a lot of calls with uh, emerging fund managers and uh, founders and just offering kind of my kind of value add in the context of uh, what Arjun does tactically and strategically with his networks. Um, but so about 40 to 40 to 60% of my time is taking care of doing that. And we, you know, we, we're we we're doing like, you know, quarterly offsites for some founders and their executive teams to kind of teach them the basic generative skills to really rapidly scale trust alignment and uh, better communication amongst uh, key stakeholders. Uh, but the other 50% time, which I'm super excited about, which I love doing internally with Arjun, is really looking at our mission, which is how do we strengthen the trust and connectivity between values-aligned stewards of capital and values-aligned founders? And actually looking at our network infrastructure um, using tech a bit, you know, affinity.co, uh, which is a relationships intelligence system. You can plug, yeah, we can plug them. Yeah, and actually uh, two things. Uh, what, one of the things I'm good at is kind of taking uh, um, snippets of people's uh, communication patterns and reverse engineering what their likely strengths and tendencies are like and doing some people diligence on that. 
And then together, Arjun and I have a frequent cadence where instead of just letting uh, networks grow organically, which is beautiful, and I think that's one of the greatest ways they do grow, mm-hmm. and rather than just taking like passive response to inbound request connections, right, or people who are asking us for help, is looking at this uh, relationship data, right, and actually uh, asking ourselves, hey, how can we actively and thoughtfully stimulate potentially net positive connections? Because I think if uh, to your effect with network effects, one of the things that uh, makes a network really powerful is not just the size, but the density, right? Mm-hmm. With the cross-linking, which is funny because that kind of maps over the brain, right? And the other part of that internal talent that I spend on is, okay, great. Part of adding value to them is um, producing like long-form thoughtful content that could be useful to our stakeholders. For example, uh, I think you read the recent one that uh, Arjun uh, mm-hmm. Y helped kind of codified by like pulling yeah. out of Arjun's brain. Yeah, Ian, <laughs> um, Ian sent, sent yeah. it over to yeah, me. Yeah, which was about like yeah. fundraising, right? Yeah, uh, sure. Let's, uh, let's give early stage or first-time founders um, uh, like a pathway they can um, execute on, you know, give them some context that they otherwise would have to learn the hard way, mm-hmm. right? Because they're so action-oriented. If you mm-hmm. just give them the right thing, to, if you just give them a roadmap, they'll learn. They might, and good founders will do it sloppily, but it'll be effective. Yeah. You know, and they'll learn from it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect first time. And then one of the, the posts that's kind of literally just codified today um, uh, is due for just a final review by Arjun is uh, what are the must-haves and must-dos of first-time emerging managers? Let's map out that roadway for uh, Let's map out that path for them so they know what they're getting into, right? And, uh, you know, how to clarify your vision, how to clarify your thesis, and how to uh, re- reinforce your thesis with your personal narrative as well, right? Sure. Um, and, and really, like, I, debunking, I suppose, the myths yeah. and the romance mm-hmm. about <laughs> getting yeah. involved Everyone in Everyone wants to be a VC yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I don't think life is yeah. predicated on hard work, but certain pathways do require a lot of grunt work. There's no right. denying that mm-hmm. <laughs> startup founders will be at the borderline of uh, <laughs> exhaustion <laughs> and burnout, sure. right? And I think it's the same thing with first-time managing funds. So we're codifying that and kind of gifting that forward to ecosystem and giving whoever we believe is doing a good job a, a nice plug in that because it's always net positive, you know, especially in the Silicon Valley uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem where word travels faster than the speed of thought, right? Why don't we leverage them? That Why don't we give valuable thought <laughs> to the mm-hmm. ecosystem? Right. There's arguments around whether it should be long form or short form, but I think if you do it thoughtfully for the right audience and you're meeting a, a need, uh, they'll read it, right? Like, it, I mean, hypothetically, if you could give birth to your own child, right? First time, you know, raising a child, like you'll probably read every page, even if it's a thousand words. Sure. As long as it's relevant to you. So, <laughs> so I get, so I think that's what we're doing. We're just going back, okay, there's uh, heuristics or like rules of thumbs around content and uh, how to be valuable in the network. But we kind of set those aside first and go back to first principles. Is this valuable to someone? Yeah. And if that means an essay, sure. If yeah. that means a tweet, Sure. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, if you get the value part right, uh, the length, there's a lot of new data about podcasts that shows after the three hour mark, uh, retention actually can increase uh, depending on what the show is. But there's no surprise, though, that at the core, it's all about the value. Right. And, it's guys, and, and to your point, yeah. for example, the podcast you did with Camille Ricketts, right? Yeah. I found that intriguing. I listened yeah. the whole time. I, in fact, I didn't do one of the activities I thought I'd do that day <laughs> because I got super pulled into it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I think that, that relevance and value add is just amazing. And I think if it comes from someone you trust, yes. it's even more important. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think topics like that and folks like that who have just such a stellar track record in uh, Camille's case and you know many of our other guests. Um, it's exciting to profile them and get them to share their stories because 
often these stories or this wisdom is something they're thinking about putting mm-hmm. into a book down the road right. or something like that. Uh, so for a lot of this, it's um, happening at the speed of business where there are practitioners on the front line, like you two who are doing work every day, they get to take a break and share all of that right away. Um, and, and that type of uh, information isn't always priced into the market because oftentimes mm-hmm. we can take for granted uh, that you know what we learned today might be applicable to a million founders, right? It's just a matter of putting it into the media and then getting it out out there. Yeah. So um, let's kind of transition a little bit uh, to talk about maybe some of our inspirations, whether they be books or people or um, favorite movies. It could really be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious to know, are there any books that you two continually refer to or um, maybe- <laughs> I'll let John start on this one. Any, yeah, <laughs> any books that you uh, reread, yeah, that's sure. always a fun one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Too. No, I, oh, I, wow. yeah. Um, I would say we're both voracious readers and I think uh, always looking at <laughs> so many different books. Um, it's hard. I think there's some things that are very esoteric. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a bit about my kind of reading history. So I started <laughs> in, uh, um, you know, initially, you know, dug in on, on a lot of books around, let's call it emotional intelligence, power, um, understanding how people operate, um, and then have gone down a pretty, I'd call it esoteric path of looking at comparative religion and, and kind of different ways that people get to the kernel of truth. So I've read everything from, you know, books about the Sufis to the Essenes to Tibetan Buddhism to pre-rabbinical, you know, Judaism, early Christianity, like all of that stuff um, as a mechanism to understand how do people think about, you know, belief and um, philosophy that ultimately guides and drives their life. Um, So those are all, all of those books have been, and they're, you know, read and reread and re-referenced often. And then, you know, as it relates to kind of business books, I, try to go through those pretty quickly um, and, or, you know, read those summaries and then try to get back to kind of first principle stuff. So sure. back to kind of psychology or back to some of this philosophy or, or early kind of religious thinking around how humans work and operate. Um, so that's where a lot of my reading time ends up being focused um, is kind of in and around those topic areas. And then I think also interested in books that highlight kind of how the world works. So you had mentioned kind of the, the Oxford and sovereign wealth thing. So I've been very fascinated by, you know, really digging into, um, uh, kind of how, how people and capital, uh, moves across the world. So a friend of mine wrote a book called coined on the history of money, you know, other folks, so, you know, you know, written books on uh, just history. So how ideas propagate over time, those are books that end up being quite fascinating. Um, so yeah, those are some of the, you know, uh, yeah, but similar to to the room we're sitting in now, uh, is surrounded <laughs> by books, and so I, this feels very much at home for me. Yeah, where, everyone should yeah. have an opportunity to come visit. Uh, <laughs> and look at all yeah. the books around here. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the esoteric uh, books because you know earlier there's always that, uh, or maybe it's just for me. There's always that, um, you know, that kind of voice that says like, don't share the craziest thing you're reading right now. <laughs> like, like, keep that one held back. And uh, but I ended up I, I shared uh, just the, the books, the uh-huh. stack right there with um. Dodo, uh, Arthur Clark, Cal Newport, um, Rene Girard, a uh, book yep. on hardware startups. Yep. That's what I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> I just went ahead and sh- just shared them on the earlier call. Right, and, right. Um, you know, it's no surprise, but the person I was talking to, they had, there was some rapport built and they were like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, but I was kind of hesitant at first to, sure. to Rene share Girard those. Is, I've been actually reading that. And I think mimetic theory for me has been a you know, deep area of interest for it's, a long time. It is so um, fascinating. And yeah. it, it's definitely <laughs> something that... Um, 
as you start to study, uh, whether it's like machine learning or when you get uh, real world experience that is um, negative around mm-hmm. large groups of people and crowds, yeah. uh, it takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> um, totally. But especially around negative crowds, uh, there's, I, I mean, I get chills thinking about it, but I was in the military mm. um, and there were just different points in times where, um, whether it was in like Iraq, Egypt, or doing security for Obama's first inauguration, mm. uh, a, a crowd can turn bad instantly, uh, very, yeah. very fast. Fascinating. Right? Yeah. Fascinating. And uh, wow. if, if you want to dive into that more, Rene Girard um, takes that theory and, and runs with it mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, to its conclusions. But, right. Um, uh, Scapegoating. Is yes. the, the, for those of you who are interested, that's the shortcut where it goes. But yeah. Definitely. And uh, yeah. so, John, yeah, we'd love to hear yeah, some about I just want to add, there was a book yeah, that jump in. came across me years back. I never picked it up. But it was a really interesting concept. It was, it was called Weapons of Mass Migration and how uh, like the maneuvering of uh, mass populations have been <laughs> used as a weapon mm-hmm. in geopolitical environments. And I thought that was really fascinating. It's, a, it's been a standard yeah. tool in many nation states, yeah, unfortunately. So, yeah, yeah um, uh, which is kind of grim, I guess. It but, is, you know, yeah. No denying the reality. My reading list is as <laughs> esoteric as Arjun's mm-hmm. and as pretty grounded. I, I think I read a range of things. Uh, for me, it's just whatever piques my interest at the time. Recently, I've been reading something by Jane Myers called uh, Dark Money, which is uh, the weaponization of philanthropy, mm-hmm. um, which is super dark. And it's great. I know why I love it so much. <laughs> the, um, uh, but then I read super inspirational uh, books like this one uh, uh, called The Power of One by Bryce Courtney, which I would describe to be like the South African version of Forrest Gump. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's a bad boy and he, he goes through his human potential journey, but it's written in really grounded terms. It's not written in like es- esoteric abstractions that you'd have to be a poet to understand. And who knows whether you really actually got the message, right? Sure. The, um, <laughs> so uh, that one I recommend everyone read. It's like 600 pages, but, uh, you know, just reading it is is a beautiful testament to the human spirit. And then the other, I mean, the other book that I really like is also some uh, autobiographies like... There's a guy called Ed Visters who's um, who who summited all the 8,000 meter plus or 20,000 feet plus uh, mountains in the world, and he's from Seattle, and he's he he did it with unassisted oxygen. Wow! And he's got all his limbs intact. Last time I checked, uh, <laughs> but uh, he he's got great stuff talking about his relationship with nature. How he says, you know, the uh, this journey to summit's optional, journey back is ne- uh, mandatory. And he also says that he has this relationship with mountains where he says they decide if you go up and just listen mm. to the signal. And he's done some amazing things. So he's one of my inspirations. Um, there's also, uh, you know, obviously I, I forgot her name fully. She's uh, swimming to Antarctica. Have you have you read that? It's a, a lady who's like I haven't. I'm already shivering. But yeah, sounds, you gotta read that. Yeah, you gotta yeah, read that. Uh, not for the faint of heart. I just read that all in one sitting. It was just a beautiful journey of how you know she's literally like has this way of like maintaining a core temperature and swimming in Arctic environments and like like swimming against currents where like when the tide changes, there's a whirlpool that will literally suck boats in. Right. And she's trying to get to the other side within those windows. This is absolutely amazing. That's and awesome. probably more on the esoteric end, there's a great book I think everyone should read if they can tolerate it. It's called uh, Seth Speaks, uh, The Eternal Validity of the Soul. And I don't, to this day, I don't fully understand it. But it's just interesting because the syntax and structure of the language used to communicate that, to, to read it and in, try and interpret it requires a, a changing of the internal brain processes. And so that's giving me some weird dreams. I don't like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah so. I, I love books that challenge you and uh, make it clear that, you know, if you've just got the superficial message from the book, there's there's way more to be discovered. Right. So th- those are a lot of fun. 
And um, there's a great book uh, called Persecution and the Art of Writing or something along those lines by Leo Strauss, which is uh, always a good reminder that many of the uh, most important truths throughout time have had to been, uh, you know, hidden in fiction or they've mm, been hidden yes. in uh, dialogue and things of that nature to, so the author can avoid scapegoating in their Comedy. lifetime. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> right. And um, that, I, I like that too, because it um, helps us see books and authors with fresh eyes where, you know, you never know what somebody is uh, hesitant to share, what they've tried to hide or what they've, what they're really trying to convey. So that challenge to, you know, think more deeply or uh, encounter a book and then reread it is, um, I think that's always a, it's a great reminder that there's, yeah, it, yeah. It, wow. the sea gets deeper as you go and gets, right. gets really deep. Right. <laughs> yeah. And also like, I, I find like, regardless of oh, what people might say about what you read, <laughs> like you, like you're always going to be your harshest critic. What about uh, different formats of media? Any, are you mm. too into movies, podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, video games? Movies, What's yeah. Uh, yeah. all of the above? Yeah. All of, I mean, I, the more kind of, for me personally, it's movies, it's, you know, television, uh, in like, you know, interesting series where they capture like documentary series, things like that. Sure. Um, podcasts certainly. Um, and, uh, I've been intrigued by this new concept of kind of video plus podcast and kind of having that optionality where you can look at the person's face as they're having the conversation, but don't <laughs> sure. need, you know, don't have to do that. Um, so you can have more context if necessary, or you can be driving in your car and listen to it safely. Um, you know, so that uh, Joe Rogan and others obviously do that. Um, so I think that's been an interesting, uh, new form of media. And then, you know, uh, Twitter is something that I'm on all the time. I love the ability to kind of quickly snack on, um, you know, content that can be pretty heavy or, or pretty light sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and it, it's a very you know powerful medium for me. So, um, yeah, very short form videos also interesting on Instagram. I think people have done some interesting things with 15 second video clips, um, to convey ideas, messages, feelings. Um, so lots, uh, I'm cool. fascinated by how ideas get into people's, uh, heads through whatever mechanism of their five senses. <laughs> sure. Uh, any yeah. favorite series or movies that, um, you've checked out recently? Oh yeah. If you can tolerate it, watch HBO Succession. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we've been talking seasons. about that yeah. recently. We've been talking yeah. about that. I mean, That's a good one. Uh, Loosely yeah. based on the Murdochs or what was the inspiration? That's like an, an, an amalgamation like that, yeah. of like every yeah, right. big yeah. media family yeah. empire. Yeah. I can neither confirm or disconfirm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, uh, uh, like I think that that's like, uh, it, for some reason it, it does a great job of portraying uh, people that I'd never want to hang out with. But, <laughs> but, but it, it gives a great insight into a, a, a certain context and style of operation in the corporate sector. I think we've all had reference experiences yeah, for that, that sort of approach. And yeah. to see it like come out so well, so well done and so nuanced, right, is just a breath of fresh air, right? And it's super engaging yeah, as well because yeah. you can see how that plays out. Right. Um, you can see those archetypes, <laughs> yeah. you know, in other places in life. And it gives a good frame of reference to say, oh, that's an interesting archetype. Yeah. Uh, I've yeah. seen that story before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think. Generally speaking, on that note, I like films that portray, that leave a question mark as to whether you can judge a human to be good or bad. Because the thing is, you know, when you look at human beings, right, in one context, you might say, gosh, they're doing such a brilliant job. In another context, if you judge them on their behavior, you might think, oh, dude, you suck, right? But the truth is, like, you can't actually draw a solid conclusion. We're complex beings, you know, we're neither good or bad. We just happen to be here trying to do the best we can, right? And so I think one of those things that I love is where you have the clear distinction that uh, who we uh, who we are inherently 
uh, it, it should be separated from uh, our behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, just because a behavior is destructive, it doesn't necessarily mean your being is. And I think that's super inspirational for me. The other thing I love watching, and sometimes Amazon Prime gets it right. They give me something <laughs> that I actually want to watch. Yeah. I hope Amazon's listening to this. Mm-hmm. They do something about it. The, um, but uh, a documentary uh, called The Life of Hummingbirds by David Attenborough. Hummingbirds are elite freaking athletes, man. Sure, <laughs> they yeah. are amazing. <laughs> yeah, because they live this beautiful like to 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 fly the way they do. They have to expend so much energy, but they have to expend that much energy to be able to access the nectar they need to sustain it. So they have to do all these complex computations and balance that. And while they're doing it, their heart beats at like I don't know, like four hundred BPM or something. Like it's crazy. Sure. And so then they have to spend the entire evening. Um, like settling the heartbeat and they literally go into hibernation every night until the sun rises. That's cool. I, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, you that's, should check that's it out. It's, only an hour. Yeah. It's, it's super inspirational and the uh, uh, like slow-mo photography is just brilliant. It's super st- stimulating. And David Attenborough, you know, English accent, super therapeutic narration. Like, <laughs> you feel it's, I mean, like, it's, it. it's a great way to de-stress <laughs> after a busy day, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely. English accents are hard to beat. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so... I, I think, um, you know, more broadly, as uh, we're thinking about like the future of technology and uh, innovation and maybe uh, more efficiently allocating capital around the world, Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be curious to know, um, you know, are you excited about the future of the Bay Area? What Mm -hmm. do you what do you see for the future of the Bay Area? What do you see for the future of America or any uh, maybe any nation state? um, Yeah. yeah, What's your take on everything? Yeah, (laughs) I love the question. Um, So I think for the Bay Area, I think as as we get more reps of building these sort of companies and start to get, you know, wiser about what our responsibility is um, in building these companies that now we are clear have global impact and scale. Um, I think it's going to be more important to continue to be more, you know, value centered in our approach and be very foundational about, you know, the ethical approach that we're taking and the, you know, the values driven approach that we're taking in starting these companies. And a large part of that is actually having capital that's aligned to that because if capital isn't aligned to that, then we've all heard stories of people driving you know, companies to grow too quickly or, you know, forcing a sale for a founder or kicking a founder out because of the capital they took. I mean, so many of these crazy stories, but as this flow of capital, uh, you know, new flow, let's say enters the market that is more long-term focused, um, is aligned. Um, I think that can actually start to create even more impact than we already have had done as an ecosystem. Sure. Um, kind of with that, uh, wisdom and awareness of, of some more long-term thinking and some more, you know, reps from that way. So I, I remain incredibly excited about this ecosystem and, you know, continue to believe that this place will produce more, uh, world changing, you know, companies, but there are more of those happening outside of this area as well. Um, so that is also encouraging and inspiring to me to think about the other places, you know, that I rattled off earlier, starting to see their own startups grow and have an impact and hopefully done, you know, with that right foundation, with that right first principle thinking, with the right set of values. Um, so to speak, you know, specifically about the Bay Area in the United States, and I think the Bay Area is, as, as a reflection of that in particular as it relates to innovation, I'm incredibly excited and I'm starting to see early indications of that happening on a global scale as well, um, which if we have some responsibility here as leading kind of the thought around that, um, we have to take that very seriously um, because it, you know, people are copying, oh, this is Silicon Valley startup stuff. And they're adapting it. Sure. The ones are doing it well, are adapting it to their own geographies. But a lot of folks are looking to, you know, what we're doing here. And so not to, you know, use the cliche quote, but I'll say it is like with great power comes great responsibility. Definitely. And we have to be 
you know, cognizant of that. So, um, I, I remain optimistic. I remain very excited about, you know, this region, how the rest of the ecosystem plays out, how some of these older industries, some of the more highly extractive approaches to things, you know, play out in the future. I, I don't know. Those will certainly shift and, and change. And so, you know, we have to be wary of what the ramifications of those might be as those industries start to change and, and shift and, uh, adapt. Um, but for the world that we live in, um, or they, you know, that John and I spend a lot of time in, I'm very, very excited. And I think I have that responsibility to, to do something positive about it. Definitely. And we talked about mimetic theory earlier, but just imagine, uh, you know, hypothetically, if individuals learn by copying and many of other individuals behavior is just unconscious imitation, mm -hmm. it's really important for us if yeah. we're, cause the Bay area is, uh, the second you travel outside, people want to know like what's Silicon Valley doing? Mm -hmm. What are people thinking? What's what so-and-so investing, so investing in? Right? Investing in? <laughs> yeah. And um, people are copying it very directly in a, mm -hmm. in a lot of other markets. So it's important for us to uh, kind of set other markets up for success where it's not a scenario where everybody's copying the meme in the wrong way. And right. it's like, you, you just don't, <laughs> right, you don't want right, that. Right. Um, and obviously over time, that'll evolve and hopefully become more unique. And as they, you know, different markets play to their geography and, right. and, and natural yeah. resources and things like that. Um, but we tend to copy each other. So we always have yeah. to be aware of, yeah, yeah you know, I want to challenge that out. a bit. I think, sure. I think, you know, uh, definitely uh, leadership by example is great because that's what people copy. And, and the thing is like, whether how someone copies it and how they distort it, like we're not responsible for really, because we can't yeah. control that. Mm -hmm. But I think what we can do is focus on this. And I think the, the meta message you have there um, is that, you know, like, uh, maybe always be pushing the fold to improve or to find new distinctions or new ways of doing things. Sure. Because if you find it useful and it's proven and you kind of break that barrier, to be the first person to break that barrier, right? Other people will follow. They right. might not do it perfectly, but you've actually extended the choices they have on uh, in their reality. So Definitely. I mean, yeah, I, blazing I the new trail. Yeah, is, make that yeah. clear distinction. Yeah, because I think I think the thing is like then that like if you take too much responsibility for uh, the things that are going wrong in the world, right? Like you won't sleep. Like <laughs> You'll never do anything. <laughs> yeah. It's a team effort. You know? it's yeah. just, it never falls down to one person. We're just like one human race doing the best we can, you know? And, and yes, yeah. I mean, you, you think about trying to align 10 stakeholders and how much effort that takes, right? There's like over 8 billion people in the world mm -hmm. trying to align the value systems of 8 billion people, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just, it's just a big will to turn. And I think humanity is doing a good job. I'm, I'm very optimistic. Um, I, I have no idea where I was going with that. No, Actually, that I is do. an important I distinction. Do. I do, I do, yeah. I do, I do. I, do. Uh, I think one of the things I'm seeing in the Bay Area, I think, uh, is a door to uh, great opportunities mm -hmm. in terms of leading, uh, leading not just in the region but setting a benchmark for the rest of the world. Is I'm seeing great funds like True Ventures, right? The True Ventures team uh, actively um, talk about the value of empathy mm -hmm. and uh, emotional intelligence, and actually like building it into the DNA of the thesis. And uh, and I'm seeing a lot of funds like, you know, your foundry groups, your Bradfelds and talk about the value of um, taking care of mental health, whether mm -hmm. you're emerging fund or whether you're a founder. Right. So I think there's this like there's this whole uh, consciousness is coming into this value of that. Number one, emotions aren't a threat. Mm -hmm. They're not a dangerous thing. It's actually a good thing to have emotions and yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, and, and you know, some people who are resistant to it might call it touchy feely, but really it's actually, it is touchy feely. Sure. It's being touchy feeling with your humanity. It's what makes us human. And I think number two that I'm seeing is that, you know, there's an increasing stress uh, amongst what, uh, when venture, uh, when venture funds vet the founders, they're looking for cues for self-awareness, right? 
I think there's an opportunity to go deeper. So I always ask, like, what specifically about yourself would you like to be aware of? Let's break that down. Because if you just say, hey, you should just build your self-awareness, no one knows what that means. Right. So I think some dialogue needs to happen around what self-awareness is. Because every time we, is it that is self-awareness like how you behave well or not so well in a specific context, right? And then bringing awareness to that and kind of building from there. Because that process of actually chunking down what self-awareness means can start to be generalized across multiple facets of your life. But if you just chuck like self-awareness out, people are like, oh, what's that mean? Like, oh yeah, look, like I look in the mirror all day and just notice when my eyebrows flip. Like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah right? Yeah, like definitely. we don't know what that actually means. So I'm curious to find out what self-awareness means for different people in the ecosystem and uh, how to codify a kind of uh, um, a deep path to explore that and not to be obsessive compulsive about it because you could spin your circles all day trying to figure out who you are. And the other direction that I think uh, is happening uh, globally and I think it's just going to accelerate is uh, this field of meta-learning, right? Because information is so ubiquitous these mm-hmm. days across uh, yeah. almost mm-hmm. all demographics, right? So it's not that we need to know how to like memorize stuff better because it's all accessible. We just need to know how to access it. But the other thing is how do you filter what's useful and not, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's where meta-learning can come in. When If people learn how they learn, they can learn anything they want. I think this comes back... this kind of circles back around to self-awareness, right? Sure. How do you start bringing uh, acute awareness into your learning style without judgment, without uh, expecting you to be something you're not, right? And right. maybe you can one day, right? If that's so what you want, right? Anyone can learn anything, but kind of working with your natural talents to develop passive least resistance, mm-hmm. the proper expression, because you can replicate that in your not so strong areas later. I think that's what uh, the... Uh, you know, the polymaths of uh, mm-hmm. the Renaissance did well, right? They started mastering one craft and they uh, reproduced that uh, that capability uh, cross-discipline. And they did it sure. without Wi-Fi, <laughs> candlelight, mm-hmm. like same amount of time we had these days. Yeah, And probably, definitely. I mean, I, I guess they had organic food by nature, right? Like, they, you know, <laughs> they, I, yeah, yeah, okay. They had a plus on us, you know, organic wine, organic food. Yeah, <laughs> like, <There to> go. <laughs> okay, I get it, but yeah. So yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, we're a- approaching a hard stop here. I was hoping that um, each of you could kind of leave our listeners with uh, one final thought or a call to action, whether it's a challenge or uh, whether it's something that you reflect on from time to time. Um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, um, I think, you know, for me, it's really about the ability to continue to learn, to continue to learn about yourself um, and to be curious uh, is what I would say. Uh, I second that. I copy him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. For everyone listening, thanks so much. And uh, a lot of the stuff that we mentioned, you can find in the show notes. We'll be sure to link up as much as possible. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.